1: Telling inspired
0: by adventure. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. I'm your host Cameron Hall and it's a true honour to be joined today by uh, a, p- a real pioneer in the world of free skiing, affectionately and commonly known as the, the godfather of free skiing, Mr Mike Douglas. Hello. Hi Mike, it's a pleasure to uh, be chatting to you today um, and just to start off with, I just wanted to see if you could give us a little bit of a snapshot about how you first got into the sport of skiing.
1: Uh, I was introduced to skiing on a school trip at 10 years old. And, uh, you know, I'd recently moved to a a new town that had a ski hill not so far away. And, and uh, from the first day, that was it. I, I, it was the best thing I'd ever done. And from that point on, I, I, pretty much did everything I could to spend as much time in the ski area as I could.
0: And as your passion and interest in the sport developed, where was the turning point for you where you thought, okay, right, this could be something that I could turn into a professional career.
1: You know, it, it took quite a while. I, I was a passionate skier all through my school years, um, ended up going off to university straight out of school. But while I was there, I was just daydreaming about skiing all the time. I had uh, my best friend at the time had moved to Whistler and was taking a gap year and and, and skiing and I was really jealous. And so I, I kind of talked to my parents and and decided that the next year I would do the same. And since, you know, from, from the get go, my plan was to spend one year in Whistler and then sort of get it out of my system and go back to, to the real world. And so I wanted to take advantage of everything I could when I was, when I was in Whistler. And so I was, I was competing in races and mogul events and I, was, I called the local photographers and I said, if you want you know someone to shoot photos of and, and all this sort of stuff. And um, everything kind of went pretty well, to be honest. Uh, I did good in the competitions Um, we got a bunch of photos published I made it into powder magazine which was kind of a dream at the time and um, and things just kind of started rolling from there and I stuck with my plan to go back to school for the next year except that I wasn't intentional believe it or not but I missed the deadline to to enter some classes that I wanted to take and when, and around that same time, I also got an invite to make the the BC Freestyle Ski Team. And when those two things happened together, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to Whistler for one more year and I'm going to give it another go and see how it goes. And then it just kind of all took off from there.
0: At that time, who were you looking up to in the sport as your idols and the, the guys that are uh, perhaps inspiring you to take that route?
1: Well, it, it you know my early idols were were guys like Scott Schmidt and and Mike Hatrip and Glenn Plake, you know the the stars of the Greg Stump and Warren Miller ski films. And then when I got to Whistler, it shifted a little bit um, because I got quite into mogul skiing, and so the people I was looking up to here were guys like John Smart and Lane Barrett and B. Thomas, who were sort of the the best mogul skiers from this area and and they be kind of became my my main ski crew and um and you know shortly after i ended up making the canadian team and, and then you know for the next five years after that i was pretty focused on the mogul skiing world
0: and was it meeting those characters that took you in the direction of mogul skiing particularly or was that something that you had a a, a passion for because in terms of free skiing i guess there's, there's fairly more limited options in terms of the avenues that you could take then as to the avenues that you can take now.
1: Yeah. I mean like back then being a professional free skier wasn't really a thing. Um, You know, there were, there were a handful of of guys like that I mentioned Schmidt and Plake and these guys that were doing it, but people weren't like getting sponsored for being free skiers back then. So you had to kind of take the competitive avenues if you wanted to just sort of make your way. And so Um, it was really the mogul skiers that that I met like they were just the best skiers on the hill and I wanted to ski with them and um and I met them and they let me tag along and then so they were the ones that said hey you know you're a pretty good mogul skier you should you should enter some competitions and and I did and, and did well and then and then um that became my thing but I didn't have those dreams growing up like Olympics weren't really in my sights as a kid growing up and I'd never competed in skiing until I was 19 years old so I was uh I was definitely late to that game I think in my heart I was always a free skier that was the
0: thing and what type of skier are you in terms of being a student of the of the sport Uh, because some people are are, are doers, some people feel the the, the terrain and and adapt to it, some people like to think and analyze, um, uh, and some people uh, just watch and and kind of copy. How would you describe yourself in terms of how you took on mogul skiing through that crowd that you were with, and how did you you push your own boundaries further? Uh, Mostly
1: by watching. I never had a coach until I made – I didn't really have a coach until I made the national team, to be honest, So, which is, you know, very different from, I think, the way that most people do it. One of the tough parts is I had, you know, 10-plus years of bad habits that had to be sort of undone, which was a, a tough process for me, for sure. But I was—I um, think I've had a pretty good ability to watch other people and sort of analyze what they're doing, and then figure out how to adapt that to myself. So, um, you know, largely, I think I've been self-taught in that way of just trying to trying to make it feel right. You know.
0: So hard. How hard was that when you're competing with guys that have come from those? Uh, coaching programs and that's all they've perhaps ever known um, growing up in the sport how difficult was it for you to break into that fold?
1: Um, Not not hard at the beginning because I didn't have any expectations I didn't have any pressure I was just like oh I'm just gonna do this mogul event see how it goes and you know next thing I know I'm standing on the top of the podium Um, the pressure came for me later on when all of a sudden like I got pretty far but you know, the next step was to try and break into like the top 15 in the world. And that's where things broke down for me a little bit. I had some barriers, just some some technical barriers um, that were holding me back, you know, just trying to undo bad habits. Um, you know, those bad habits carried me so far. But when you're competing against the best in the world, it doesn't work so well. And so with my coaches, it was tough because, you know, they really had to break those habits down. And and the process of doing that was was quite demoralizing for me. Um, Just the constant negative feedback from coaches really was tough over time and and started sucking the fun out of the sport. And I think you'll hear that from a lot of competitive skiers that have moved on or uh, people that compete in anything. A lot of them don't do their sports anymore. Because when you reach a certain level and you're kind of stuck and you're, you you plateaued a little bit, it becomes, um, a source of negativity. And when that started happening, um, to me, that was sort of a sign that maybe it was time to move on, do something else. And it was also the fact that I was kind of broke. Um, when you're, you know, mogul skiers at that time, well, and all the time, they, they don't make a lot of money. I mean, I was barely, I would work all summer and spend it all winter to just try and keep myself going on the, on the tour.
0: And just coming back to that negative feedback, how did you deal with that from a a mental perspective? Was it, was it bringing you down and and, and what were your outlets to combat it?
1: It was tough for me. I'm, I'm a person that, that does a lot better, um, with positivity and encouragement. I've learned that since I, uh, these are things that you'd learn over the years. and actually. I went on when I finished mogul skiing, when I sort of retired in, uh, in 1994, I, uh, I went and became a coach. And um, one thing I will say is that, that that really served me well as a coach to, to have struggled with that, because it, it kind of gave me an empathy and understanding of what the athletes that I was coaching were going through. And everybody has sort of, Different motivational triggers, and um, I was—I felt like I could really adapt those to the individual, and we had some pretty good good success in my years of coaching there.
0: And what was your uh, your motivation at the time? Was it with an eye on the Winter Olympics? Was that was that the overall dream of what you were striving towards?
1: Yeah, it became the motivation. Um, I. I wasn't very patient with it because I was already viewed as old when I made the team. You know, most people make the the ski team at 17, 18, 19 years old. I made it at uh, 21. And, um, you know, if you, you kind of have till you're about 25 to to make your way, you know, there's always anomalies, but uh, when I you know, I was doing pretty good by 92. I didn't make the 92 Olympics, but had another opportunity in 94, Lillehammer. And so that that became a goal um, in those years. And I, I was the first alternate for the Canadian team for Lillehammer. Didn't make it. Um, but there there is some some solace there because the, my teammates did really well. Jean-Luc Broussard won that year. And our whole Canadian men's mogul team, I think the worst finisher was seventh or eighth. So, they did very well.
0: Was that the, a failure for you at that time to have not made the team, or were you at peace with the fact that you got a, as far as you, you could within the discipline?
1: It was a bit of a disappointment, but it, I didn't feel like it was a failure. You know, I, I I was able to look back and go, you know, you've been on this team for three years. It's not like it was a career goal that just never happened. I mean, everything happened quite quickly, and for me at that time, you know, I was mogul skiing, I was very focused on it, but I also had a lot of sort of side ski stuff going on. I was working with a guy named Hide Chiasu who, uh, who was, who was pretty deeply rooted in the Japanese ski business and ski scene. All my sponsors were from Japan at that time and the business in Japan was booming and I would go over to Japan and do mogul demos and, and events and, um, and i made a lot of connections through that. So, You know the the competition season would end and i would often head off to japan for a few weeks and and do that kind of stuff and through that because i've always loved free skiing like free skiing never really fell away when i became a mogul skier it actually my i remember my coach yelling at me one day because i kind of hurt myself a little bit free skiing because it it just snowed a bunch and we were supposed to be training and i went off and did a few powder runs before and so, um, you know, I, we'd go to Japan, we'd go there to do mogul demos and I'd just go off powder skiing for half the day. Um, so I, I had this sort of deeper love of skiing that allowed me to keep a little bit of perspective on the whole thing.
0: And how did those connections from Japan come about? Were they, uh, was that a market that was reaching out to North America because they were looking to expand? Or was that through some personal connections that you had from perhaps in Whistler? Um, why, why, why were all your sponsors from Japan?
1: Well, um, Japan back in the late '80s, early '90s was half the global ski market. Like half the skis sold in the world were sold in Japan. So they, they were booming. They had more skiers than anybody, and the business over there was really strong. So obviously, they're you know when the economy's booming like that, they're looking for people to help them market products, whatever. mogul skiing was also huge in Japan, and so I was a good mogul skier and brands wanted to have me on their stuff or have me come and do their demo at their event or whatever. And, um, and yeah, it just kind of carried through. Also, Whistler has a, a, a good connection to Japan. There's quite a, a thriving um, little Japanese community in our town and um, being a, you know, a, a reasonable length direct flight to Tokyo from Vancouver, uh, that connection happened quite easily.
0: And so did that help to give you um, more of a, of a platform when you transitioned away from the mogul skiing because you already had uh, another aspect of the sport sort of bubbling away um, outside of the, 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 the training camps and maybe the more regimented side of the sport that you've been in?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I went straight to coaching when I sort of retired from moguls and I coached locally here for two years uh, with the, the Whistler-Blackcomb uh, freestyle team. And then I actually coached two years with the national team as well after that. But during that time, um, I kept my Japanese uh, connections going through business, through sponsorship. And um, it was actually the end of that deal when the economy collapsed in Japan and the ski industry started tanking. That was sort of that was the, the catalyst that, that got the next phase of my career off the ground.
0: In terms of the, you mentioned a little bit earlier about um, being in, like, a powder magazine. From the content side of things, when did that start to happen for you? Was that already underway when you were on the mogul side, in being, you know, pictured, um, having pictures taken, being in films, and being in front of the camera?
1: It was happening, but not as much in North America at that time. I had a little bit, you know, I'd do the occasional photo shoot here, there, in, you know, around Whistler, but where it was really happening was in Japan. So through my mogul years, I was making one mogul or extreme movie a year, um, for the Japanese market. So, um, you know, there'd be a, a japanese producer come over and we would film here usually just right after the sort of the mogul season would end we would film here in whistler for like the next four to six weeks and try and try and do a film and it it usually had mogul skiing in it but it also you know we'd go heli skiing and and we'd jump off cliffs and and do all that kind of stuff so it was kind of happening but it wasn't until um we got the whole um 1080 new school freestyle thing going in 97 where it it really turned and took off
0: Uh, which i want to come on to but just before we do what level of um knowledge did you have of ski design and uh, uh, ski technology was that something that you you've been educated in directly or or been self-taught in uh, through the different programs and races and training camps that you've been on or, and, and how did that become to be something that was at the forefront of your mind in terms of trying to do something different within, within the ski world in terms of design and uh, progressing the, uh, uh, the, the, the equipment further?
1: Well, it didn't, it didn't come from the design point of view it came from, from our desire to ski that way we wanted to do different tricks and and try progressive things on skis and we we started doing it on our mogul skis and um and got to a certain point where it was like we we started realizing the limitations the first most obvious one was that we wanted to be able to land backwards and we couldn't we had these straight square tailed skis Um, the other thing at that time um skis were very narrow and so when you start working in soft snow, you didn't have the flotation and the skis would stick. And, um, you know, and ski design in the mid-90s started going through a big transformation. Uh, the first, you know, carving skis were out. The the idea of a fat ski was out. There was a lot of innovation and shift going on in ski design. And we were trying all these skis. Um because, you know, my, my ski sponsor at the time, which was Neisel, um, out of Austria, but through Japan was how I was being sponsored. They were one of actually the most progressive uh, ski companies in the 90s when it came to design. They had, I think it was the second ever sort of shaped ski. So we were getting to try a lot of these things and things like snowblades and, and all this kind of stuff and, and getting an idea of how, you know, making things wider, making things narrower, more side cut would change a ski. So uh, I don't have any formal training, but when it came to what we were doing, um, what needed to be done in in terms of of ski design seemed pretty intuitive to me. And, and um, interestingly enough, without any formal training, the, the design that I did for the 1080 ski on paper was pretty close to what the first 1080 ski was.
0: How do you go from having thoughts and ideas and concepts that perhaps you're talking about with uh, colleagues and friends, on the chairlift and in the gondolas and in the you know the bars, to taking that forward to a company to say, "Hey, I've got this idea." I think this is going to be revolutionary for the sport. Let's make it happen. Presumably, there's a lot of hard work and process that you've got to go through to be able to get to that point of actually having a physical product.
1: Yeah, it was, it was really difficult, actually. Um, and a lot of credit goes to a colleague of mine, uh, Stephen Faring, who was actually my mogul coach when I was on the Canadian freestyle team. And we kept in close contact. He was actually, at this point, 1997, I was coaching with the Canadian team. I was one of the mogul coaches, there were several. Um, And uh, he was coaching the Japanese freestyle team. And he was also working quite closely with the brand Solomon in Japan, who was sort of hungry for some new ideas. Keep in mind, the ski industry was sort of on the downhill slide over there and not doing particularly well. So Steve, you know, as we were up training, and and uh, myself and the new Canadian Air Force boys would be fooling around and and trying new tricks. uh, We were having dinner one day, and he said, "Man, you guys should you guys should make a ski that's made for that." Like I bet you Solomon in Japan would be super into that. And I was like, "Yeah, you're you're right. We we probably should." And so that kind of kicked it off and got the whole thing going. And then I wrote up a a twenty page proposal about about this not only the ski i didn't give away the designs but wrote up like why i thought the concept would work we made an eight minute video called air carving that sort of illustrated what we were trying to do introduced the crew and then um i gave this stuff to steve and he took it to solomon in japan but he also took it to the top eight other ski brands in japan and around the world um, using sort of his connections to, to try and make that happen. And, uh, you know, we thought, I don't think we thought we had a hit on our hands, but we thought we had a, a pretty good argument on why this would work. And um, long story short, over the next three months, uh, the door pretty much got slammed in Steve's face um, repeatedly. And in the end, after three months of, of peddling it around the ski industry to all the top brands, uh we had the biggest interest initially was from Rossignol and this sort of second most interest was Solomon and but neither one of them were really behind it how we thought they needed to be Rossignol in the end said look we're not going to build you a ski we kind of have something similar which we'd already tested and we knew didn't work but they they thought that they had it they said but you guys are really good skiers we'll sponsor you So if you want some product and whatever, and we're like, well, you're kind of missing the point. Like, that's not what we're trying to do here. Um, so we let that one go. And then I remember it was ski season was about to start. I no longer had a ski sponsor because my mogul sponsor out of Japan, Naisal was done. Um, and I was quite sad. And then I got a phone call from, um, the guy who was running Solomon in Canada at the time. His name is uh, Guy Bertillon, And he said, hey Mike, I, I'm a, such a fan of what you guys are trying to do. I think it's such a great idea. I know it's disappointing with how it's going right now with Solomon, but I think if we can make it work. like There's enough people starting to really see the future in this that it might actually work. Hang in there. And so um, right when I was kind of ready to give up, to be honest, um, that call came. and I, And so I was like, okay, I'll hang in there a little bit longer. And um, it was about two or three weeks later, we got the call. And Solomon said, let's make a deal. And, uh, and we began the, the process, signed some contracts for myself and, and the boys and, um, and started working on the, what became the 1080 ski.
0: And from that phone call to actually then seeing the physical product and being able to, to ski it, how long of a process was that?
1: Well, there was a testing phase that happened pretty quick, like probably six, four to six weeks after, which is very quick. Cause it's funny because the engineers at Solomon, they're like, Wow, we know we know what you want, because we weren't giving away the, the designs of the ski until we had signed contracts and, and a deal in place. So they were kind of guessing. They're like, Yeah, 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 we, we we know what you want. And they the first testing session they brought out the the axe cleaver it was called. It was like a, a super short really aggressive hourglass side cut ski and um we just laughed in their faces we were like you guys have no idea like this is a joke like you don't get it at all so it was kind of back to the drawing board and then once you know that kind of helped fast track our contracts getting signed and then once uh once that happened we started uh talking specs on the ski and how it needed to be and they fortunately solomon had a ski in the range called the x mountain at the time which was the chassis that we wanted to build the ski on anyway like out of all the brands we kind of narrowed in on that one as the one that had the shape that we thought would work and then essentially adding the twin tip and a bit of stiffening in certain parts of the ski and um and once they kind of knew that, once we said, we want to base it on this ski, they went, oh, okay. And it was, well, that would have been early January. And in early February, we had the first Protos.
0: And did you realize at the time how much of a revolutionary ski it would be and what sort of an impact it would have on the industry and the, the sort of the, the free ski community? Did you did you feel it? Did you Did you have that sense of... Okay, I think we're doing something quite special here.
1: I mean, I, I remember the first time we brought the ski out. It was at the very first US Open of free skiing in Vail, Colorado. Um, and just seeing everyone's face when we sort of un, unveiled it on the podium because we had gone to the event and competed on our mogul skis. Or I, actually, I was because I was coaching at the time, we just put um, JF Coussin and uh, and JP Eau claire in the event, and I was just running logistics because it was a bit of a gong show. But um when we when the boys pulled the ski, we we kept them covered and in a box. And then for the first time ever they were released on the podium at that event, and everyone's face was just like, Whoa, what is that? Like that's the coolest thing ever. Because it was not only cool to see a full twin tip ski, but it was also um the graphic at the time was very edgy. There were no words on it. It was just the Solomon logo on this kind of bright yellow gold colored ski. And, um, it was unlike anything that anyone had seen. And so there was definitely some, some excitement and that sort of built over the, over the next years. Uh, you know, they would, they got some into the shops by, I think June that year, which was super weird to launch a ski in June. Um, and that limited run sold out in like a few days. And then in the fall of uh, 98, um, the ski hit the shelves and just was like gone instantly. And so I don't think in the beginning we realized, we were hopeful that, you know, it was going to catch on and we were thinking it was kind of cool, but um, you, you never really know. I mean, but it worked out. It was, it was a, Definitely something that, uh, it, was, it was an exciting time, so I'll say that.
0: And when the penny dropped with Solomon, uh, what sort of pushback was there from them um, with, you know, name, design? Did you have, you know, a full uh, firm grip on, on all the, the specs or were they working collaboratively with you to say, you know, with a bit of pushback to be able to get to the refined product or was it largely, you know, your vision brought to life?
1: Uh, it was collaborative for sure. Um, you know, we would, we would suggest things and, uh, the name we did not come up with. We first thought it was kind of goofy actually. Um, but the graphic we thought was cool. Like we were all pretty fired up on the graphic and, um, you know, one of, one of the, I think the challenge moving forward was that when it's a, when a product does so well at that level, um, There's a reluctance to change it and innovate it because, you know, the world, especially at that time, the world was a much slower moving place. So like what was really hot in North America and Western Europe, um, you know, you go to Eastern Europe or Australia and, and things were behind a little bit in terms of like they would get the ski the next year. And so as the 1080 sold through all these markets, I remember there was some resistance when we wanted to change it, when we wanted to change the color and update the design and stuff like that. And, and I remember there was some pushback in the business going, we hang on guys, we, we, this thing is selling so well. Like we got to just keep it the same. We're like, you can't keep it the same. You're going to kill it. And um, it, there was definitely some some push and pull in that regard as, as time went on.
0: And did that give you more, uh, more of an appetite to 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 then think, okay, well, we brought this, you know, vision to life to take a deeper dive into uh, uh, the development of equipment, or was that something that you felt, you know, okay, satisfied with here, and you started to look for more things uh, to do with with bearing with the segue towards? When did the filmmaking side of things come into your mind and thinking, okay, you, you you're coaching, uh, you've got this new ski on the market uh, you are in films. Um, there's already a lot going on there. So what juncture, uh, did you then think, okay, now it's time. I, I actually want to step behind the camera and, and, and explore, uh, uh, film creation.
1: Well, that came quite a bit later because so when the 1080 took off and, and the new Canadian air force became, we were this hot entity in the world of skiing. Um, I actually quit my coaching job right away because we were in such high demand that like literally every week we were wanted by, you know, all the biggest ski movie makers were, were booking us. I think, I think that first in 98, 99 season, we were in like six different ski films. Um, all the, all the biggest ones. Um, we had, I remember we'd show up at the X games, we'd have an ESPN camera crew with us like almost 24 hours a day. Um, it was like literally the, the rock star stuff. We'd show up at events and people would be screaming. And I, I mean, it was, it was as exciting as it gets. So And it, it was very busy, and, it, and I wanted to be part of that. It was back to skiing. And, and, and keep in mind, at this point, I'm like 28 years old. I still love skiing. I was still pretty good at skiing, and I wanted to be a skier. I didn't want to just settle into a, a coaching life. Um, so I quit coaching. Went down the ski road um, and focused on, you know, being in ski films, competing, Uh, I crashed out at the X Games one year and was offered a spot in the announce booth and became the commentator for the X Games. Um, So and during this time, my personal evolution, you know, was because I live here in Whistler, we have such great backcountry and powder and and all these things. I moved myself sort of out of the terrain park where you know it's, you know nearing thirty years old, my back starting to get a bit sore, um, and I started focusing more on the backcountry at a snowmobile, and and at that point developed the pocket rocket ski, which was the first fat twin tip, which fat it was ninety mils underfoot, which is laughably not even fat these days, but back then it was a it was another revolution. So that ski did very well, also. Um, and it wasn't until, and keep in mind, I was also a part owner in the momentum ski camps at Whistler. So all summer I was running a ski camp and training kids on the glacier um, and coaching in that way. But when my wife and I started having kids, that was kind of the first shift because running ski camps in the summer and being sort of a, rockstar skier in the winter, you travel all the time. And then with kids, um, the travel became more difficult. And even the time away during the ski camp, I was like living in a hotel in my own town, because it was so busy dealing with the ins and outs of what's going on 24 hours a day in ski camp world. Um, and I, I kind of started to burn out a little bit on that and and wanted to do something that had a little bit of more of a normal schedule, I guess. So that's kind of where the film uh, came from because I I looked around and said, well, what am I into? And um, you know, I was in all these ski movies, but I was also really interested in the behind the scenes and the perspective of the cameraman and the editor. And I was, at this point, I would go and help um, Johnny DeChesire edit his movie every year. Uh, people didn't know that at the time but I would spend like literally days and days in the edit suite and so the other thing was back in those days um, there were no pro skiers over 35 years old like you hit 35 and it's like game over you better have a backup plan and so um, that was my backup plan too so I started switchback entertainment and fortunately still through my connections with Japan, believe it or not, we got some work right away. And that's part of the reason I started the company was instead of hiring all my friends to do the work, I figured, well, I've, I'm out of the ski camp business now, and maybe I can I can do that work myself. And so I started producing um, promo videos um, for in the ski business in the beginning, and then it kind of just evolved from there.
0: So when you're Uh, the talent when you're in front of the camera uh, and you're working with directors or even when you're uh, you've been invited into the commentary booth, are you absorbing everything? Are you perhaps getting involved in the direction yourself and saying, well, actually, I think we should set up the shot here and this would be a better line to take and we can do it from this angle. Are you already finding that you're, you're putting in some creative input during that time?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um i like i said i was i'm just i'm a really curious person and i i I, every everything i've been involved with i've been i've been trying to learn from and trying to watch the way people do things and you know whether it was skiing in the beginning or or filmmaking or making television with espn i mean espn i will give full credit they taught me how to tell stories because you know the nice thing about you, you get in as a skier when you're in the ski world, you think that it's like the whole world and it's like super interesting to you. But when you get that outside perspective that ESPN gave me, because these are guys, the guys producing the X games television shows, they might ski, but they're not skiers. You know what I mean? They don't speak the lingo. Um, And, and it took them a few years, I think to finally drive this into me, but my job as a commentator wasn't just to tell you what trick you just saw it was to give you a reason to care about what you're watching on the screen. And, um, because action sports, to be honest, for to to most people are pretty boring. There's not this big rivalry between two great football teams or, 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 um, you know, a battle of, of two boxing legends or whatever. It's like a bunch of kids who you don't mostly know the names of doing, tricks like how do you make that interesting so we would we would talk a lot about um, how can we give grandma a reason to care that that Simon Dumont and Tanner Hall are the two greatest half skiers in the world and they're about to face off in a you know for a gold medal and so um, that was really helpful in, in for me, moving forward in my film career, because at the time um when I got started, it was really a world of ski porn. We called it. It was action and music, and and the progression of the sport was what made it exciting. But when I came in with Switchback, and when when we started um, Solomon Free Ski TV, what I really wanted to do was was bring it to life in a different way. I wanted to tell stories about the characters. I wanted to tell stories about the places we were going. It was always athlete segments. It's like, oh, here's Mark Abma's segment and here's JP Eau Claire's segment. And it would be a collection of their footage from could be anywhere in the world. It was just like, check out this dude. He's awesome. And instead I was like, well why don't we do, you know, why don't when we go to Japan, let's make a Japan piece and tell a story about that and so um, that's really common now like that's kind of how things seem to go but back then that was that was a pretty um, radical idea I'll say.
0: You mentioned ESPN giving you sort of a different perspective on the storytelling process. Did you take any ideas and inspiration from other areas outside of skiing through perhaps films or books or um, arts or culture in different ways? Did you start to absorb? other types of content and try and bring that within to the adventure sports world? For sure.
1: Um, I, I mean, I, I, I take inspiration from virtually everywhere. Uh, I read a lot. I am a, a fan of documentary film and adventure film. Um, it really wrapped up for me when I started, uh, when I went to my first film festival as a filmmaker and I started seeing all these films that were so inspiring and, and well done and then meeting the filmmakers and, and um, just trying to learn from what they were doing and trying to raise the craft of my own filmmaking and, and add levels of sophistication and storytelling and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, and that's honestly what I continue to do today. Um, uh, you know, Mountain Film and Telluride, which is one of my favorite film festivals, they just released their whole festival online. And so I've been for the last three days, every evening I go and watch, you know, probably three to four hours of, of films. And uh, I love it. I love, I love just seeing all these different perspectives. It's, it's really cool.
0: For yourself as an owner of, a, of, a, of your own media company with Switchback Entertainment, how do you go about now choosing the stories and the narratives to take from a concept into a full production? what's that process like and are there any common themes or key ingredients that you need to have as a common denominator before something gets greenlit?
1: Well, I mean, I would say about two thirds of our work um, is, is done with the brand Solomon still. They've been a great partner of mine for a long time. Um, and they give us quite a bit of freedom with the type of stories that we get to tell. Uh, We, you know, generally spend all year looking for stories and, and we go into a meeting in, in, you know, in the fall and, and, and present a whole bunch of ideas. And, and there's sort of this committee within, within the brand marketing team. And we, we decide on what, what people think are interesting stories, interesting characters, um, things that will resonate with skiers and, and are in line with, you know what the values of the brand are and and the direction that we want to go, so for our biggest client, Solomon, that's sort of the process. otherwise, um, it's kind of a mix. It's like every now and then you stumble on a really good story or a really good character, and you just kind of run with it, whether you have backing on that or not um, and then and then you know that that doesn't happen every year that you'll that you'll kind of nail one but um, and then the other stuff is is more commercial work, so TV commercials, um, promotional, um, public service announcement. We've started working a lot more with um, in the environmental realm. So I, I uh, work quite a bit with the um, the group Protect Our Winters, and uh, they're climate advocates, and um, we've we've been doing producing content for them based on their needs also producing uh films like electric greg that uh that are based around um, people trying to make the world a better place so uh yeah it's it's kind of a, a mix of all those things but we're we're always looking everywhere for inspiration that's for sure
0: well, I know we chatted with uh, Izzy Lynch very recently uh, on an episode of the podcast who uh, talked to us about um, Protect Our Winters Canada and her work within the organisation. I believe you're, you're uh, sitting a little bit at the top of the tree, the president of Power Canada. Um, what, what are the, the duties outside of your, your role? We switch back in terms of creating content. What are the wider duties and responsibilities that you have uh, within that role in the organisation?
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm the, the, the board chair, so um, I oversee the, the board, which, of course, directs the staff at Pow and Izzy's um, one of our staff members, and she does an amazing job. Um, we're really looking at the, at the overall direction and how effective we're being as, as climate advocates. Um, climate change, to me, is, is the, the most pressing issue of our time. Um, there, there are uh, some, some difficulties ahead if we don't get a handle on this soon. And it's really been my lifetime and experience as a skier. And all those years I spent on the glacier here at Whistler, um, you know, running that summer camp and seeing the the glacier, uh, disintegrate over time. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but we may have seen the last summer ski days on that glacier it's it's it, you know now it's obviously covid-19 that's stopping them this year but it's barely hanging on and so for me that really drove climate change home and made it personal i'm watching you know my youth as a skier disappear kids that want to do what i did can't do that anymore and and that's made it quite personal for me um and so climate has been a a, a topic that you know for the at least a decade now that's been uh fairly close to the front of my mind and something that i've watched closely i always thought that governments were going to do something about it i thought that they would collectively get together and, and make a serious effort on this um i'm not an activist i don't consider myself an activist i'm not like you know a person that's been fighting the man my whole life i'm a skier and a filmmaker and someone who's passionate about the outdoors and who cares uh and when I saw that not enough was being done, I was like, well, if no one's going to do it, then <laughs> I can't really complain if I'm standing on the sidelines. And that's, how, that's why I got involved. And uh, Protect Our Winters seemed to be a group that I could identify with. I first got involved with with POW in the U.S. and then realized that we really needed uh, an organization um, like this in Canada as well and, and um, came back. And with a few others, we started POW Canada. Uh, geez 20 2018 i guess we launched so only two years ago but it's been a busy two years we've been we've been able to get some stuff done it's good
0: and within the adventure sports world and within the ski world uh within the community that's you know on your doorstep in whistler i imagine that there's a lot more people who are engaged because they're spending a lot of time in the outdoors anyway but how do you see the role of Power Canada in terms of uh, educating and uh, empowering people who perhaps don't see the effects like you're seeing firsthand uh, up on the glacier? Uh, and how do you if, help to them to affect positive change in their behaviours? Well, yeah, I mean,
1: we're, we're fortunate because we're talking primarily to the outdoor community. And people that spend a lot of time outside and in nature and in the mountains, um, when you love something, you, you're willing to protect it. One of the things that, that we're fortunate to have with POW is we've, we're, we're reaching a, a group of younger people than typical environmental groups do. And um, we're getting them involved. And, and really, at this point, it's a numbers game. We need as many people demanding action on climate from our governments as possible it's great to do individual things to take individual action and and i think we all should and i'm trying to i'm I'm 95 percent vegetarian now i drive an electric car i've divested my investment portfolio i'm reduce reuse recycle Uh, i'm trying to cut down on my travel i'm trying to do all these things but ultimately whether i do that or not we will not achieve the goal we need to gather collectively. We need as many people as possible so that we can go to the to the highest government levels and demand action and say, you know what, we have to change. And one thing, you know, when I look at at this COVID nineteen situation, I actually see a tremendous opportunity, an opportunity that we never had before and will likely never have again. And that is, we're essentially getting a hard stop on the way the economy runs. and virtually every sector in the world needs some sort of bailout or bridge funding or whatever you want to call it the governments if we put the right governments in place we can make sure that the right things are funded on the way everything that we fund from this point on should be consistent with the goals of the paris agreement and if we do it right and we do it collectively on a large scale we can make the change and we're probably not going to stop climate change, but we can slow it down enough to give ourselves a a chance to, uh, to adapt and make it through.
0: Yeah. If there's ever, ever time to reassess, rethink and uh, come back better and stronger. It's, it's now Uh, has to be now Um, just to bring it back a little bit to the storytelling side of, of, of your work now, Mike, I wonder, is there a particular project Film story that you've worked on that you're the most proud of?
1: Cool. I mean, we've been lucky. We've had a few good ones. Um, I, I think uh, my first film that did did really well in the film festival world was called The Freedom Chair, featuring uh, a Paralympian named Josh Duik, incredible, inspiring person who's been through. Such hardship and, and has sort of risen out of it. Um, that one that one will always sort of stay close to my heart. And Josh and I are good friends and stay in touch. And he's just always like just one of the most inspiring people I know. Um, you know, working with Andreas Franson on Tempting Fear. Andreas was was a uh, incredible mind and and just philosopher. And, and exploring sort of the limits of, of, of human potential. Um, sadly, he lost his life in, in 2014, but it was just really interesting to spend time in his mind. Um, some of the travel stuff I've got to, got to do, um, spending time in Kashmir uh, was, was incredible and just seeing those cultures and trying to bring some of those things to life. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, I, I don't, I'm not a, a person that dwells a lot on what I've done. I'm I'm a person always sort of looking forward. So it's interesting because you, you put your heart and soul into some of these projects and then they get out there. And then immediately my mind is like looking in the, in the next, in the next direction.
0: Um, I think they're it was, not, They're not yours anymore. Are they? Once they're released, they belong to the audience. Well, order. you
1: just like, you, you can't, I I just don't like to dwell I guess I I, and 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 there was a time when I was more I guess I would focus a lot on like how well a film did to for it to be successful Um, you know what are the reviewers saying and and how many views is it getting what's you know all these type of things and I've realized that more often than not, that'll lead to disappointment. You're not going to nail it every time and, it, and, and you don't want to dwell on that stuff. And, and I've really tried to learn to love the process. Love just making a film from start to finish. The, the, the shooting, the editing. I'm, I'm deep into editing a short film right now. And I've, I'm actually purposely stalling the process. I'm dragging it out. I'm exploring every little avenue because I know that this is the last one I have to work on right now because everything got shut down because of COVID. So I'm just trying to drag that process out a little bit and, and, uh, and enjoy it.
0: Outside of the projects that you've made and the films that you've been in yourself, what films or segments within films uh, within skiing and adventure sports do you look to and think, that stands out as an excellent piece of storytelling or cinematography. What are your favorite sections of films or or films in their their entirety that you just enjoy as being an audience member?
1: Well, um, I really, you know, thinking to my favorite adventure docs, um, Free Solo is a masterpiece um, in my mind. Uh, Obviously what Alex did was incredible. um, But in terms of craft, storytelling, character development, they did a, an, an amazing job. Um, that to me, I was really excited when it when they won the Oscar for that because it kind of validated our world a little bit. I think Jimmy was able to kind of carry us all a little bit on his shoulders there, and and that was that was really cool. Um, I'm a big fan of of pretty much everything Jordan Manley makes. I think Jordan is a brilliant storyteller and and the way he crafts his films is is incredible um the whole skiers journey series was mesmerizing um and he's a good buddy too we we talk quite often and i really really appreciate uh his perspective um you know i mcconkey shane was was one of my best ski buddies um and And to watch his life unfold on film like that was I thought they did a really good job um, yeah, I mean inspiration comes from all over the place. there's like one of my I don't like fishing I, I don't really care about fishing, but one of my favorite short adventure films um was made by another friend of mine Ben Knight and Travis Rummel from soul uh, media um and it was called Eastern Rises and it was about this Fishing trip to Kamchatka. And on paper, it sounds like the most boring thing in the world. And I love that film so much that I went and saw it twice at a film festival, which I don't think I've ever done before. So um I just love I love the craft. I love uh, you know, I watched a film last night about mental health. It's part of a mountain film called Live, and I was just captivated for an hour. And it it was a topic that I don't I would never seek out we'll say that but but it I was drawn in and I I just love it when people just nail the craft.
0: Obviously having uh, a long career and um, you've worked and skied with some of the, the 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 best in the in the business and you you mentioned Shane McConkey there and there's been a, a few people more than a few over the years like JP O'Clair and uh Sarah Burke and uh, Dave Treadway who, who've unfortunately have lost their lives um, doing the things that they love. In knowing these people, how much of an impact has that had on you personally? Um, and I wonder if there's any particular memories that you, that you cherish from, uh, from your time in skiing, or maybe not even on the camera or, or, or on the hill, or, but away from the sport, with these people that you um, that now, when you think about them, you look back on and perhaps a few anecdotes that you might be willing to share?
1: Oh, countless. I mean, yeah, I've, I've lost more friends than I, I care to count. It's, it's a staggering number, to be honest. And, and when I, where, where it really hits me is when I flip through my the photos on my computer. Sometimes I'll be looking for a photo of something and I'll just start scrolling and, you know, an hour later I'm still scrolling through photos. But when I look through the photos from all these trips and realize how many of those people aren't with us anymore, it's, it's pretty sobering. I've, I've, when, when my wife and I had kids, um, I reassessed the risk I was willing to take as a skier, uh, I, I definitely lowered that risk a notch. Um, and that doesn't mean I'm totally safe. I mean, the mountains are not inherently risky, but I do what I can to um, to mitigate that risk. And I think part of the reason I became a filmmaker was being behind the scenes. You are not putting yourself out there in the same way. You're there, you're in the place, but if you're not the one standing on the top of the peak and you're the one filming it, um, there, that is a safer position to be in. And I think subconsciously I was, you know, having little kids at home. That was, that was a place that I felt would made more sense for me to be at a certain point. Um, but yeah, I mean, the stories, geez, I I could go on for hours And, and mostly it's the good times. It's the, it's the laughs and and the silly things that we've done that, that stick with me. And, um, you know, Shane's practical jokes. We we, we always did, a, up until when he died, we did an annual trip every year to Chile together. And so we always, regardless of whether, how many times we saw each other during the year, we always had that one trip. And it was just nonstop practical jokes, whether it was ice cream, eating contests, um with the kids in the hotel or um taking um ridiculous photos of inappropriate parts of your body to um you know one one year shane brought his his daughter and wife down on the trip and and um and he filled one of the other guys in our room he filled his ski bag over the course of the week and all the little pockets on the ski bag filled them with um, dirty diapers and then that guy flew home with a whole bag full of dirty diapers and didn't open that ski bag for three months um so you know and Sarah's smile and the funny things like Sarah Burke was like a little sister to me and so I just remember her like taking care of her like a little sister and and just silliness JP his laugh uh yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I, I try not to let it get me down. I'm um, thinking about all this stuff. I try to try to keep it, keep it positive. And I, and I do keep in touch with a lot of the, the family members, um, to make sure everybody's doing okay. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's tough, but it is what it is. It's, it's life, right? It's, yeah. um, it's not boring. I'll say that.
0: And for yourself as well, there must have been a few, more than a few scary moments uh, over your career. Um, and perhaps still today when filmmaking, trying to position yourself in certain places to, to, to get the right shot and whatnot. Are there any stories that you can share in terms of some, you know, maybe near misses that have been quite sobering for you?
1: A lot. I mean, i geez. Um... at least once a year I end up in a position on skis or in the mountains where I'm like I really shouldn't be here this is really bad this could all go wrong quickly um and no matter how careful you are things happen um you know lots of lots of close incidents um with avalanches near misses um you know even even crazy travel like being stopped at a, a a road checkpoint and having a you know an automatic weapon pointed at you as as you're asked to to show your papers like stuff like that you're like oh man i don't want to be here right now um, yeah it's uh i i actually had a flight early this year earlier this year where i got um it was a red eye through the night and I got violently ill like 30 seconds after takeoff and was ill the entire flight. And just like, it was a disaster. I mean, just stuff that's like, what's going on. I mean, thank goodness that was before the COVID thing took off because I think people would have like probably killed me thinking that I was like going to infect them all or whatever. I mean, just crazy stuff.
0: And moving into more positive, uh, aspects, you work with a lot of people, um, a lot of the big names within the, within the sport, uh, is there anybody over the sort of the decades that they've gone by that you haven't worked with, but would have loved to?
1: Yeah. Oh, well, there's a bunch. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the things that happens is when, because we work so much with the brand Solomon, we work with the Solomon athletes. Um, which and they're great. I love my teammates and and um, the, the team is incredible group of guys and girls and, and I absolutely love working with them. But what what happens is we all end up getting siloed into our groups of of athletes and and you know the TGR athletes work the TGR athletes and the MSP and you could go across the world like that the different crews. Um, So for me, it's interesting you say that because this past winter in January, I had an opportunity. I I picked up a job in Japan and um, it was a social media based job. And they said, we want to hire you to do some promotion for our ski area. Um, We want you to come with one other pro skier. And I said, well, do you have anyone in mind? And they said, no, um, we'd like them to be, you know, to have a pretty good social media following. But after that, it, um, it doesn't really matter. And I was like, my eyes lit up. Cause I was like, you know, I, I was between two Solomon trips and I was like, I'm going to just open up my contacts list and, and make a list of all the skiers that I never get to do anything with that, that are like, Good friends, but we just never get to go on ski trips together. And um, and Sage Catabriga Alosa was the guy that I ended up calling up and and choosing. And he was fired up. And it's the first thing he said was, "We never get to go skiing together. This is so cool." And we had the best time. We spent a week in Japan together, um, skiing every day. And um, just he's just such a bundle of positive energy. And and to have that opportunity. Uh, was really special and I, and and it was actually that was my last big travel trip of the season and um, I, I'll cherish that one for sure because uh, if you I don't know if you met Sage but he's just one of those awesome dudes
0: and from looking at the, the the pool of talent which is seems to be ever expanding particularly with the the age of the dissemination of the media and people to almost taking more ownership over their own content and the, you can almost be a an athlete through Instagram now uh, um, who are you looking at as the people who are coming through within the sport of free skiing that are getting you excited that you'd perhaps love to work with or um, you're, you're, you're you know you're, you're hooked onto where their careers are going and progressing
1: I feel a little bit for the youth these days because I feel like it's in a ways it's never been easier to make it, but also in a lot of ways, it's never been harder. There's there's just so much busyness and information. So it's tough now for the young people to to make it through. Um, You know, on the skiing side, uh, Sam Cooch, I, I got to do a trip with him last year and that guy is skiing at a level that is, he's the best. Like he won all the awards this year, and he he deserved them. Like when I skied with him, I spent a week skiing with him, and all day long, every day, I was like, "Wait a second! You're gonna go! You're gonna jump off what? And you're gonna land where?" Like he looks at the mountains so different, and he can do things that I didn't even think was possible. So he's a really exciting guy to watch ski. Um, you know, like there's there's I, I'm really liking what's happening on the female female side of the sport, and some new talent coming up. Um, I like, uh, you know, the blondes, the Swedish girls that, that live um, here in BC now are doing exciting stuff. And I know they have a, a segment coming out in MSP this year, which which should be pretty cool. Uh, it's nice to see some young talent kind of breaking through. Uh, I really like what Katie Burrell's doing. She's sort of looking at skiing a different way and kind of making fun of it, which I think is always great. And that's what McConkie was so good at, too, was, was kind of making fun of ourselves um i'm a big fan of the real ski fi guys the finnish um jibbers that just do just super creative stuff on their skis um i everything they make i'm just like totally fan out on so there's lots of there's lots of exciting stuff uh nikolai shermer out of um out of norway with bringing his Skiing and and skills and combining it with with things around climate and sustainability. Um, always Jeremy Jones is you know at pow He's kind of our our guru leader, and he's he's always um, doing interesting stuff. But there's so many. I'm I'm such a fan of of skiing and and film and and all of it. I I'm just feel super fortunate to be to be included in the group. You know,
0: off the mountain, away from the camera. Uh, how does Mike Douglas relax and unwind
1: um well i've especially lately the last couple of months i've been spending a ton of time with my family, which has been quite nice it's the longest stretch i've been home in probably my adult life i don't know I've been home now i haven't I haven't been on a trip involving an airplane for um for almost four months um, and I haven't left my town for uh over two months now so um it's it's been quite nice but I also uh, my best friend is is uh from when I was a kid lives just up the street from me and almost every day we do something together we'll go for a bike ride we're big big into mountain biking that's kind of my my summer thing and I go mountain biking almost every single day And most often with with my buddy, Kevin, who, I don't know if you've seen the film Snowman, but um, the film is about his life. It turned into a film kind of about our our own lives and our friendship. And uh, that continues today. Um, I uh, rode bikes with him for three hours yesterday, and I will go out this afternoon at some point and ride bikes with him again. So...
0: Well Mike it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you and uh, yeah hopefully you get in some good bike riding today. Um for people that want to uh find out a little bit more about some of the productions that you're involved in, uh where can people find and follow you?
1: I'm I'm keep my social media fairly updated. I'm uh, I'm on Instagram often, so Instagram at mike D. Ski, and also Twitter at mike D. Ski. Those are my two sort of social media platforms I use. I don't use Facebook a lot. But also uh, we have website, switchbackentertainment.com. And if you want to see probably the biggest collection of our work, uh, the Solomon TV YouTube channel is a good place to start.
0: Brilliant, thank you so much for your time, Mike. Really appreciate it.
1: It's been a pleasure, thanks Cameron.